0: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly internal medicine doc, Dr. Jay.
1: This is Dr. Santos reporting your neighborhood friendly pediatric
0: infectious disease doc and researcher.
2: And hello from the depth of the ER. It's your oh, ER MacGyver, right? Dr. Ward.
0: Well, guys, today is the summer solstice, longest oh, day of the year. so nice. Woo-hoo. The weather is
1: completely overcast where I'm sitting. There isn't a drop of
0: sunshine. One of the things I like to do during the summer is catch up on movies. And there's been a lot of big summer blockbusters lately from Infinity War, Black Panther, The Incredibles 2 just came out. It's, it's summer movie season. And for those of you who have been listening to the last few weeks of Travel Medicine Podcast, we've put up a few of our classic summer episodes to kind of yeah. get you in the mood
2: hey I did notice that this summer season a lot of the movies that are doing well are kind of sci-fi related like technical related right
0: so I figured it would be kind of fun for us to start picking apart movies both current and classic uh, that have shall we say dubious medicine or just talk about what are you know what happens when they're designing medicine in movies and why don't they consult <laughs> us gosh darn it
2: well, there are a couple of holes in uh, Wakanda's medica- medicine. <laughs> They're
1: not. Uh, their medical Suri. care. It's just that Suri is way, way, way smarter than us, and she has access to all that delicious vibrance.
2: Also, their portrayal of Oakland is a lot of off, but we'll, we'll talk about that another episode. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. It is not a war torn. Yeah, it is, it not is not a, a war torn no. kind of...
0: Well, the reason I wanted to bring this up is that uh, in 2002, the Henry J. Kaiser Family Foundation of Kaiser Permanente, issued a report that attempted to quantify the effect of television. Um, well, specifically, they looked at the show ER, which, you know, we all yeah, grew it up was with. Kind
1: of in, in its heyday when we were medical students. And I think, wasn't there actually a... Shortly before, and
2: before, right? Shortly before,
1: yeah. And I think before, a surge of young doctors who went into emergency medicine because they watched ER.
2: Did well? Did did it have an effect on you guys? Were Were you inspired by the movie, or I mean, the the TV show at all?
0: It probably did influence me in at least some ways. That
2: it influenced me to do my ER rotation. At the at, at the ER that uh, ER is based on, at Cook County Hospital. Oh, and...
0: Cook County. The stories we oh. could share if it weren't HIPAA protected.
2: <laughs> That's right. Well, it, it looks like they did try to share by changing a few things on ER the show.
0: Yeah, less oh, yeah. shootings, for one. Way less. The survey, they took 35,000 regular ER viewers, surveyed them over a period of three years, and it found that a bit more than half said they spoke with family and friends about health issues based on how those issues were portrayed on the show. And then, you know, with us, a third said the show actually influenced their choices relating to their own or their family's healthcare decisions. That's a huge influence from just one TV show. So imagine if you start seeing things in film and TV over a variety of shows and movies, and if that information is not right, correct.
1: And- it's one of these things we always struggle with. I think everybody, all of you guys, you definitely need, we love pop culture. We hate pop culture fallacy.
0: At least when they pertain to our own field.
2: Well, right. And this was before the hashtag fake news thing <laughs> became a thing.
0: Let's start off with something that I thought was fascinating and fun, and then we can get into picking apart all the terrible things that are wrong with some of the movies that we love. Oh, God. <laughs> pop fiction god okay yes Um, but first and foremost babies how often have you seen a baby in a movie who are these babies agents how do babies get casted in films like do they just pop them out and put them right in front of the camera do you film live births like what happens i looked into this because Uh, i was i was very interested in learning how one becomes a baby actor after perhaps watching boss baby. And I'm like, I just wonder if they couldn't find someone who fit the role that well. And that's why they went. animated.
2: Imagine giving baby notes. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Your crying wasn't convincing enough. I
0: think the old
1: adage is never work with children or animals.
0: Well, that's because they're going to upstage you. Here's some of the things I learned about newborn actors before we get into like actual movies. Um, Infant actors are actually really, really well protected. They can only work four hours a day, and that's not a straight four hours. They can only shoot for 20 minutes right, of those hours.
1: Exactly. So what you actually have to have is a
0: baby rotation. You mentioned, Ward, SAG regulations. You are born into SAG. You lose your membership yeah. later, but as a baby, if you appear, <laughs> if you appear in any film, automatic SAG. For at least the duration, so you can get those protections. First Screen Actors Guild regulations a baby has to be at least 15 days old. So no live births can be filmed because no newborn baby meets that 15 day requirement. Yep.
1: It's probably a good thing. they, They do have to be a side evaluated you know is it a cute baby is the baby going to cry right all that other fun stuff kids got to be healthy the kids got to be thriving teen days is a pretty good although it's it's not fantastic especially in california where they don't like to vaccinate a lot
2: well you bring up a good point no matter what your vaccination status is before 30 days these vaccines are they they don't
1: it's not they don't great, give you any protection anyways. The thing is, in that 15-day window, if mom has been adequately vaccinated and is healthy, the kid has all kinds of maternal antibody. On. If you protect them, oh, that's true. you know, 20 minutes on screen, no big deal, or 20 minutes during the shoot, that's fine. Then you cocoon them, you do all the things you're supposed to do to a newborn,
0: no problem. I want to know who's casting 15-day-old babies. <laughs> like, are Is there just some movie producer lurking around the nursery? <laughs>
1: No, I, I think there are actually agencies that take in kids that where moms and dads want to audition these kids. And so just like any other role, they are cats.
0: You noted before, Santosh, because these babies can only work for 20 minutes out of an hour and only four hours a day, you have to have an infant round robin, a whole yeah. swap. <laughs> uh, and they all have to be roughly the same age, the same hair color or lack of hair, and look enough alike that they can double each other. I mean, you're probably not paying too close attention to a baby unless it suddenly changes race or age like halfway through the shoot.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And you do have to, you know, most of the time when you're doing a newborn kind of thing, you want the baby to cry, and so... It's heartbreaking for mom and dad or whoever's on set. You know, you're watching your kid cry during that, you know, whatever, a few seconds or minutes of shooting. But the real challenge is to find a baby that'll actually chill and not cry. And then if you need a non-crying baby scene, you need to have five of those kinds of babies. And I don't know how you find five chill babies. <laughs> Because I can't find.
0: Them. You certainly try, because otherwise you end up with one of those horrifying, uncanny valley things, like in the movie Sniper, where you know you're breastfeeding this horribly fake-looking <laughs> doll. You've
1: got all that money, right? <laughs> buy a realistic doll that has like a.
0: I thought you were going to say buy a real no, baby. No, no, I'm not
1: going to say <laughs> buy a real baby.
0: Oh. <laughs>
2: No, 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 babies, babies no, are like love. You can't buy them; you just yeah. can only rent them. One <laughs> of the
0: more famous ones is in the movie Knocked Up, where you know they are representing a live birth, and you have a a newborn baby or you know a fifteen day old baby subbing in uh-huh. for a newborn, uh, covered in the placenta and the afterbirth, Bro, and not you know covered on the placenta. Well, yeah, not covered in the placenta. Thank you, Santosh. I'm a little outside my OB/GYN rotation. Placenta uh, juice, yeah. Placenta,
2: placenta juice, juice. Placenta yeah.
1: Juice. Are we doctors or are we doctors? Uh, <laughs> hey,
0: hey.
2: It's the it's the, it's the it's new not flavor of Jamba Juice
1: uh, <laughs> down in.
0: The don't patients I <laughs> see are like around sixty, so cut me a little slack here. Hey,
1: don't joke about that. That flavoring in your Jamba Juice, by the way. Those. Weirdos who eat and drink their own placentas are out there in Silver Lake.
0: So
2: I can totally see, yeah, a Silver Lake store selling that.
0: Well, the stuff that looks like post, you know, afterbirth or vaginal discharge on babies during those birth scenes—the post-birth stuff. The scientific appropriate name for it, Santosh, yes. if you're going to be all technical, sure. is the vernix caseosa, right. which is Latin for cheese-like varnish. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you've actually got two things, right? <laughs> so you've got the actual amniotic fluid. That's goopy and viscous. Um, you You have blood and tissue coming from the uterus and the vaginal canal. And then you have that uh, sticky, cheese-like, kind of palish, uh, very thick gunk, which is adherent to the skin of the baby, that unless you wipe it off, your kid looks like they're just kind of wrapped in paneer. You've got amnion, you've got blood, you've got, you know, a little bit of tissue, and then you've got this vernix, which is right on the skin. So you've got to reproduce all this. Not a lot of people watching are going to be, like, acutely aware of how accurate this is. But if you want to please the doctors in the room, you've got to replicate all this stuff.
0: How do they do it? High fructose corn syrup and Friends. The same things that you use for, like, fake blood in the horror movies. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. And... So that's, that's the blood tissue, but the Vernix caseosa is a mixture of grape jelly and cream cheese. And,
2: Great on a and, bagel.
0: <laughs> and this casting director, who works with a lot of kids, took time to emphasize the integrity of her goo. It's edible, it's gluten-free, it's water-soluble, it's non-toxic, tra-la-la. So <laughs> grape jelly and cream cheese on kids for birthing seeds. <laughs> The reason casting agents will very often go for like twins or triplets isn't just to get lookalikes for the same character for baby swapping because, you know, that mandated 20 work minutes, but also sneaky, sneaky multiples are typically born a little bit premature. So if you get a premature baby, that's a way to cast for age zero while still sticking to their 15 day old age requirement.
1: Right. And even if they are born on time, a lot of the time they're small for gestational age, SGA which makes them look more newborny. Although, <laughs> thanks to uh, all the wonderful work I've gotten here in the United States, I've seen a lot of big babies. No, oh, they're not going to get
2: cast there. No, yeah, mean, body shaming go. starts early in Hollywood. It's <laughs> That's just yeah, 15 it, days old.
0: Here, take this diet formula. So... Not looking dead is a huge part of infant acting. If a baby falls asleep, handlers aren't allowed to wake it because that would be mean. So they just swap in a conscious backup baby.
1: You'd better believe that everyone in that shooting room, lights, production assistants, all those guys are on their best behavior.
0: (laughs) That's it for babies. Now let's get to the fun part. Let's start complaining. In a famous scene in Pulp Fiction... Mia Wallace, played by Uma Thurman, snorts a large dose of heroin and then collapses in either a cardiac arrest or sudden coma. Vincent Vega, played by John Travolta, brings the unconscious Mia to his dealer's house, where he then hands him a syringe of adrenaline connected to a six inch long needle. Travolta plunges the needle into the front of Uma's chest with, like, a huge swing of his arm. And he doesn't even have time to push the plunger in and actually inject the adrenaline before she immediately screams and wakes up.
1: With the needle still hanging out of her chest.
0: How realistic is this scene? Discuss.
2: (laughs) Well, I think it pulls together a few things that are from the truth. And you know, for dramatic effect, they kind of took yeah. some liberties, with it, to uh, say the least, with it.
1: Never, ever, ever, ever stabbed someone in the heart with a giant needle.
0: Okay, you want to start there. Let's start there. In a cardiac arrest, in a cardiac arrest, the preferred route right. of epinephrine injection is to an arm vein or a neck vein, along with chest compressions that move the drug through the circulatory system and into the heart. You don't have to go straight to the heart. Medications administered by IV lines or even injected directly into the muscle reach the heart in seconds with near immediate effect. A good example of this, EpiPens, which have adrenaline.
2: It well, part of the problem is getting right into intracardiac injections are exceedingly difficult even by the most trained professionals. It's not that it wasn't done before. I think Historically this might have been done way way in the past. Really the only time I ever do an intracardiac injection, put a needle into someone's heart is not to put stuff in, it's to pull stuff out when there's a layer of blood between the uh sac around the heart and the heart itself. Uh sometimes that can squeeze the heart into stopping and then the only way to get, you know, the, get the heart back started up again is if I put a needle and draw blood out, not put stuff, not put more stuff in.
0: So that's, you know, granted, when Pulp Fiction first came out in 1992, I wasn't in medical school yet. So I was not appreciating the finer points of how unlikely this was. But you can inject into a lot of places that are not directly the heart. Because also, if you miss and you run the risk of puncturing a lung or puncturing the heart itself and having the chamber kind of bleed out, which is not good.
2: In fact, if you successfully do an intracardiac injection, like if you actually your needle went into the heart right where it's supposed to be and you injected epinephrine, you're very likely going to cause bleeding through that heart into the pericardium and cause a cardiac arrest. Um, that's Highly not recommended.
0: collapse from a cardiac arrest due to other health issues. If it was a sudden coma from heroin, uh, she would have died because a shot full of adrenaline would have done nothing for the opiates. Opiates kill people by prohibiting the respiratory drive. It slows and stops your breathing. It has nothing to do with the heart. What they should have filled that needle with is a morphine antagonist called naloxone.
1: A lot of, um, you know, not only healthcare workers, but uh, police have been encouraged to actually carry naloxone with them to help fight overdoses.
2: Yes, the modern... Okay, so in 2018, the modern version of that would have been uh, a John Travolta carrying a, not an EpiPen, but a Naloxone pen. And put that into a heroin overdose vi- uh, victim's e- either muscles or there's a nasal injection. You can put that in, up someone's nose.
0: A drug dealer who works for Marcellus Wallace would know that.
1: It is it is embarrassing that uh didn't know that off the bat.
0: So, you know, minor, minor issues. Moving on okay. to another movie fact. Defibrillators. We see him all the time, Ward. How often have sure. you seen in the films a defibrillator being used on a flatlining patient?
2: Now that I'm trained in emergency medicine, every time and that happens, it just bugs me folks, to no end.
0: That's that's asystole uh, for the medical term. The treatment is drugs such as adrenaline, not shocking with a defibrillator. So in other words, that Pulp Fiction needle thing, this is when you might use it. Oh, and before Ward goes off on his rant, which he deserves to, for flatlining. Uh, rubbing the paddles together doesn't happen. One, because we use stickers now, and two, old timey machines needed a conductive gel to put on the paddles. So you would squirt it on one paddle, rub them together, and then turn the machine on. You wouldn't rub them together to charge them. If the machine was on and you were touching the paddles, you would have been launched across the room like a Looney Tune. <laughs>
2: That's right, and well, you know what? It's again, it's for that dramatic dramatic effect. It's all about building dramatic tension, right? You hear that boop, 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 boop. Oh, get the get the paddles, get the paddles, and then that makes a good scene, right? Where where someone still has a pause. Oh, not looking quite right, and putting on the gel, shaving the chest, uh, putting on the paddles.
0: That's true. I've I never just, seen I, a I, single movie takes where they're like, "He's flatlining. Quick, shave his chest."
2: <laughs> yeah. Change the diapers, shave the chest. That's actually what happens.
0: Not to mention and which, yet yeah. you you're would in a never true cardiac a arrest later on a flatlining patient. It can only be used on certain heart conditions, which are arrhythmia So the heart is beating too fast or out of rhythm. If they're flatlining, you should be doing CPR or chest compressions. So there was an academic right. medical paper that looked at the phenomenon of cardiac arrest survival rate in movies, and they studied 35 cardiac arrest scenes in 32 different movies from 2003 to 2012 including Casino Royale, Mission Impossible 3, Inception and Spider-Man 3 for accuracy and credibility but it's it's called a missed opportunity for public health education and resuscitation and the study concluded that in the movies defibrillation and cardiac arrest survival outcomes were often portrayed inaccurately with in 8 scenes of in hospital rest 88% of the patients survived compared to actual survival rates which is around 23% in the literature and in 12 movie scenes involving a heart attack outside of a hospital setting 67% of the patients survive compared to about a 7% survival rate in the medical literature in summary people are surviving too often in the movies
2: that sets up a a actually a fairly unrealistic expectation for our medics and doctors you know if you if you're a layperson and you saw that who was down for an hour and was brought back immediately these same expectations cannot be applied in in real life and as you and i know most attempts to resuscitate correct a cardiac cardiac, arrest is a
0: little bit different than a heart attack that's just a portion of your heart is experiencing cardiac death but when the whole heart is stopping usually it's a small chance. it's not non-existent, but it's a very small chance that you'll be successfully revived without you know some kind of lasting damage.
2: Oh no, that twenty three percent is twenty three percent is not bad considering you know uh, that that the person was clinically dead and we brought him back to life. but that doesn't count account for people actually walking out of the hospital with uh, walking out of the hospital uh, the, the The numbers of people actually walking out of the hospital intact being able to, you know, resume their previous yeah, and, and that lifestyle, that's, that's a lot this lower. This gives
0: me two good spin-off or jumping points now that we've talked about a full cardiac arrest. And we're going to start with CPR, with the absolute worst cardiac arrest or CPR scene of all time. Is that what an award, award like
2: a Razzie or a... baggy <laughs> <A> baggie? <laughs> oh, we should call it a baggy because you use a <laughs> bag. Well, we bag the patient... It's a it's a medical well, term for artificially breathing for.
0: The baggy, the baggy, the Razzie, the worst CPR of all time. That award goes to James Cameron's 1989 film The Abyss, which has every possible CPR error you could possibly make. So go back now and watch it and I haven't seen you'll that be movie. laughing through what is supposed to be a very tense and dramatic scene because in this movie, a major character's resuscitation consists of first random weak pushes on the chest with bent arms, sporadic rescue breaths to the mouth, which is just like uh, push push, maybe we'll breathe now, a few pushes, maybe we'll breathe, like no no rhyme or rhythm, and electrical shocks administered randomly while ignoring the water pooled all around the patient and the subsequent electrocution risk. At one point in the scene, <laughs> a whole minute goes by where not a single chest compression is performed. And about two or three minutes after that, the rescuers give up on the patient, despite the fact that hes they've only tried about three to four minutes total of this awful technique. After the failure of all of the above, they restart his heart with a slap to the face.
2: Okay, do you know about the cardiac thump? You? So the cardiac thump, it's not quite a slap to the face, but it's, it's not too far from it. It's just a little bit lower. It is a thing when a person goes into cardiac arrest. Sometimes it's because of a condition that requires shock, so such as ventricular fibrillation, pulseless VTAC. So it's, the heart is in a bad rhythm. So you can't feel a pulse, but the, the, the heart's electrical activity is still active. So what you need is you need a shock. But sometimes we don't have, you know, sometimes you're in a place where you don't have that defibrillator hooked up or the paddles hooked up. So uh, it's been written in literature that you can give a cardiac thump, meaning using your fist and just slam da- down as hard as you can in mid sternum right at the presumed near the apex of the heart. And that, in effect, is a it's equivalent to a weak shock it stuns the heart, and it kind of resets the electrical activities. So not quite a slap to the face, but a hard thump to the heart sometimes will restart a stopped heart due to yeah. an I've tried it once. It did Don't do it. Yeah, don't do
0: the cardiac thump. Do don't do the cardiac thump, There's please. a few things you should know about CPR. It's administered with straight arms. You bend at the waist. You don't use bent arms right? Because you want to really be able to kind of almost do a, a piston type motion. So straight arms, bending at the waist, delivering two to three inches of chest compression a hundred times a minute. So you're pressing hard enough that you, you're almost breaking ribs. And how do you know if you're going a hundred times a minute? Well, songs like Britney Spears' Hit Me Baby One More Time, the Bee Gees' Stayin' Alive, or even... Star Wars The Imperial March are all a good solid hundred beats per minute rhythm for you. And you do it continuously until a heartbeat is reestablished with somebody either bagging for rescue breaths, so it's being continuously, or if it's just one person CPR, you give two rescue breaths every four to five seconds. And most codes, as we call them when somebody goes into a full arrest, will will not give up on patients until at least 15 minutes of good CPR have failed.
2: To increase the likelihood of bystander doing CPR, we most uh, people in the medical community, especially in emergency medicine and EMS uh, fields, are recommending if you don't want to give those two rescue breaths because you don't know that person, compression-only CPR has been shown to save lives. So just... Britney spirit until the medics show up and can give you oxygen. If you can give rescue breaths even better, but just doing CPR itself, they've actually done some studies. They think it's because the compression, the just the act of compression itself brings a certain amount of oxygen into the lungs and provides a little bit of gas exchange. To come, does survive hopefully. a cardiac
0: arrest very often. Not always. But frequently, they'll be intubated or placed onto a ventilator, a machine that helps do your breathing for you. So, Ward, did you ever see the movie Million Dollar Baby?
2: Is that with Hilary Swank?
0: There's a couple concluding scenes vital to the plot that are medically impossible and unrealistic. So, spoiler alert the female lead, Hilary Swank, is seriously injured in a World Boxing Association title match and subsequently paralyzed from the neck down. So she is a ventilator-dependent quadriplegic. Her coach and trainer, Clint Eastwood, visits her. They sit down. They have this long discussion where she tells him she doesn't want to go on living like this, uh, paralyzed, which is, you know, that's her decision to make. No judgments one way or the other because we have a lot of of quality-of-life discussions. But she tells him she doesn't want to go on living like this. Uh, The first problem with this scene, it's impossible for someone to talk if they're on a ventilator she's going to have a tube down her throat. Or alternatively, she has a tracheostomy with the breathing tube inserted right into the front of her neck, below the level of her vocal cords. Okay. You can't speak if you have a trache tube in place because all ventilation takes place below the vocal cords. If she can't speak, she can't utter her lines and she can't have this whole meaningful dialogue with Clint.
2: Now there are people who have tracheostomy, not tubes, the crach- holes on their neck, uh, who are not dependent on a ventilator. Now they can actually speak with uh, s- techniques where they where they they use a voice box, yeah. And they can actually they can actually make words, but that's a different. Right. But they're now, not cric and vent dependent.
0: Now, in a later scene, the machine is waiting for them, which wouldn't happen. Takes place. Clint returns to the same room. And again, spoiler alert, uh, or kills Hillary Swank. So first, I mean, ethical issues aside, first, he turns off the ventilator and disconnects her breathing hose at the tracheostomy site. That truthfully would have been more than enough. But then he injects her IV with a syringe of adrenaline and the vital signs monitor shows her heart rate suddenly changed to zero as she dies. So she goes to a flat line. Guys, that's not how adrenaline works. It's not a euthanizing drug, all right? It causes the heart rate and the blood pressure to go higher and higher. Her heart rate wouldn't go to zero if he pumped adrenaline in. It would go to 200.
2: That is not a good way to go, to turn someone's machine off.
0: I guarantee you, if she was on a ventilator, she would have a telemetry station where there would be a nurse assigned to just watch her monitor. And if anything changed, there'd be a huge alarm and everybody would rush into the room and immediately attempt to resuscitate her unless, you know, she had changed her code status. But so, so many problems with that issue
2: oh not to mention if you try if you disconnect a ventilator if that ventilator goes haywire and goes nuts Um, and the alarms (laughs) immediately go off and
0: unfortunately we don't have our anesthesiologist with us is intraoperative awareness this gets brought up in a lot of horror movies actually um so i'm gonna tell you one that's not a horror movie just for the sake of it a movie called awake in 2007 young billionaire clay bearsford or you know uh what's his face? Anakin Skywalker from Star Wars. Um Yeah. He needs a heart transplant and oh, Hayden when Fistonson, he gets the general yeah. anesthetic for his heart surgery, it turns out that he's wide awake and aware and while he's awake, he overhears the surgeon's plan to murder him. The movie trailer aired a statement that said every year 21 million people are put under anesthesia. 1 out of 700 remain awake. And, that's pretty high. You know, do Th- you have a 1 in 700 chance of being awake? If you're a healthy patient undergoing routine surgery like gallbladder, appendix, a lot of urology type surgeries, the answer is no. If you're extremely sick and having a high risk procedure like a transplant or a bypass, the answer actually, yes, That's those are accurate odds for very sick patients. And this is from a It's called the Siebel Study, and it was from the Department of Anesthesiology in Emory University. They took 20,000 patients scattered across seven different academic medical centers in the U.S. Patients were scheduled for surgery under general anesthesia and then interviewed in the post-op recovery room one week following. A total of 25 awareness cases were identified, so that's about a 0.13% incidence which matches up with the one in 700 quoted in the awake trailer. It's that it's not all surgeries. It's extremely sick, high risk things, uh, high risk surgeries. And right. awareness was associated with increased uh, American society of Anesthesiologists risk status, meaning that assuming about 20 million anesthetics are given in the U S annually, the authors of the study postulated that about 26,000 cases of awareness occur each year. Some of the things that include a higher risk include patients with a history of substance abuse or chronic pain because the sedating drugs simply will not work as well. The anesthesiology class four patients. So patients who have a severe systemic disease, that's a constant threat to their life. So high level lung disease, high level heart disease, limited cardiovascular reserve. Uh, Patients with a previous history of intraoperative awareness, if it's happened before, it could happen again. People who require the use of neuromuscular paralyzing drugs during the anesthetic, and people undergoing those high-risk surgical procedures, such as trauma, uh, severe trauma cases, emergency cardiac surgery, and emergency transplant. Um, And again, this is not the full-time aware. They're not awake during the whole surgery. Locked in is another horror movie trope. It's that they will actually kind of be aware. And usually this is indicated very quickly to the anesthesiologist with changes in their vitals, blood pressure, or even moans or expressions of pain. Yeah. And yeah. So it, it does occur not nearly as much as the movies make it out to believe. Now, the last one Ward, I thought was interesting because it's something we don't really talk about a lot. And that's, bullets how often in a movie have you seen a character get shot and then they have to rush to a back alley doctor or just a dirty apartment to then immediately pull the bullets out of themselves
2: not infrequently and uh they they make good stories you know that that the scene of people <laughs> driving by an emergency room rolling that person off a hill or you know just dumping someone right at the emergency room yes, is actually that, not, an, actual uncommon, Roll not up, an uncommon Not by uncommon out the
0: door and then keep on driving um, which is very sad, but right. at least an accurate portrayal, with rare exceptions. Bullets do not need to be emergently removed after a gunshot, despite what you know most of the movies would have you believe, such as I think Robert de Niro and Ronin or i don 't know pick any cop movie what did they just remade uh they just remade Death Wish with um Bruce Willis right that came out a couple months ago. Uh, So a misguided attempt to remove foreign objects, such as bullets, is usually a much greater risk than leaving it in place. And a lot of times when we do x-rays on war veterans or people who have been shot for whatever reason, we often do find their bodies have metallic shrapnel that's lain harmlessly within them for years. So, Ward, walk us through what what should you do if you are actually shot? What kind of thing would you expect to see? In an accurate representation, well,
2: it depends on where you 're shot, so the like you said, the bullet itself the the actual bullets once it's stopped, generally is not an issue unless it's compressing on a nerve or uh, it's sitting in a vessel blood vessel, but it's the path that the bullet took, and the shock wave that went through the uh, with the bullet that does the damage, so the emergency surgery that needs to happen is actually repairing the havoc that the bullet wreaked when it traveled through your body. So let's say if a bullet bullet hits you in front of the chest, as soon as it hits your chest, it flattens out. And at, on its way in, it doesn't even necessarily take a straight way out. It can it can tumble, it can roll, it can take a, a circuitous way on its way out. And on its way out, it rips blood vessels, nerves, um, internal organs, just it rips them apart on its way out. And the emergency is that just because a bullet just went through you, uh, now you have a hole in your intestine or a hole in your stomach, a hole in your uh, blood vessels, and they're all actively bleeding. That's what kills you. It's the leakage of blood and, you know, um, hollow viscous fluids like stomach contents, bile, Um, uh, stool and small bowel contents that kill you it's not the presence of a bullet itself sometimes when you get shot in the leg or an arm or an extremity that bullet may not need to be emergently taken out especially if it didn't nick a blood vessel if it's not causing any nerve damage sometimes it's in a place where it's better just to leave it in if you're shot anywhere just please call 911 (laughs) let us figure out which way the bullet went because uh, more often than not these bullets don't take a nice way well it didn't bug me but i loved the idea of the wakanda hospital <laughs> i was like you know what i wish i worked there can i just say that their doctors well you know that the, the 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 doctor who's also a scientist who's also a you know female warrior their costumes yeah. or their yeah I want their clothing doctor is so too. much cooler than our white coats we actually, uh, Josh and I went uh, went to a exhibit uh, in was it Kenya or was it Tanzania? Oh, it was, uh, and I have to say, I love non Western doctors' <laughs> costumes because they just inspire awe and fierceness in people. Like they wear like a. A, a, a necklace of skulls or you know whatever but anyway the, i like i love the idea of the wakanda Wak- wakandan medicine where it's it seems like it's minimally invasive they just use the vibranium injected into Which the body and direct it where to go and miraculous. your spine and, is uh, fixed.
0: cath lab or angiogram guided procedures it's just a little bit you know lower risk because it's hollywood style and they can repair a bit more than we're currently capable of.
2: Other issue that I recently took issues with was uh, the Doctor Who movie when the when the hero was uh, when Doctor Who was brought back to life and his girlfriend slash um, <laughs> emergency doctor, which totally is not ethical. You cannot treat your boyfriends and girlfriends, gentlemen and ladies, you... You should not be treating your family members. But anywho, <laughs> they had some other circumstances. But she was stitching him up with, like, no gloves, just a bloody hand. Well, he's
0: got two hearts. So, <laughs> After you know, she they're, injected they're a needle into There, I'll grant him a little bit heart. of poetic license. But, yeah, that still seems like just an unsanitary thing. So, you know, guys, practice proper hygiene. And, you know, don't stitch people up in alleys. So that's it for this week with Sickness of the Silver right. Screen. If you guys can think of any other film scenes that you would like us to comment on the accuracy of the medical technique, please leave, leave them in the Facebook or our Twitter feeds. We, As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all other all our other co-hosts. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels.
2: Yay, happy travels.
1: No, no lollipop.